Before you listen to this podcast, just a quick word on some special offers for PTO listeners. For a short time only, new $8 patrons can get a free copy of Bhaskar Sankara's The Socialist Manifesto and a 50% discount on a one-year subscription to Tribune magazine. New $5 patrons can get 50% off a Tribune subscription and all new $3 patrons of the show can get 70% off any new ebook from Repeater Books. Their many excellent titles include Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization by Grace Blakely, K-Punk, The Collected and Unpublished Writings of Mark Fisher, and Abolish Silicon Valley by Wendy Liu. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guests today are Tabita Chow and Jake Werner. We talked about the roots of the emerging new Cold War between China and the United States, the reasons for bipartisan opposition to the PRC and the specific character of anti-Chinese racism in the US. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of titles that might be of interest to listeners. Can a city ever be feminist? To answer that question means wrestling with a set of entangled power relationships. In Feminist City, Claiming Space in the Man-Made World, Leslie Kern exposes what is hidden in plain sight, the social inequalities built into our cities, homes and neighbourhoods. She offers an alternative vision of the feminist city, laying out an intersectional feminist approach to urban histories, and proposes that the city is perhaps also our best hope for shaping a new urban future. It's time to dismantle what we take for granted about cities, and to ask how we can build more just, sustainable and women-friendly cities together. Feminist City is out now from Verso Books, and part of their July book club reading. You can buy it directly from their website or get it as part of your Verso Book Club membership. Visit versobooks.com for more information. Tabita Chow is the director of Justice is Global, a special project of people's action to create a more just and sustainable global economy and defeat right-wing nationalism. He's involved in organising a progressive internationalist alternative to the growing tensions between the United States and China. My second guest is Jake Werner, Jake is a historian of modern China, currently teaching in the Graham School at the University of Chicago. His work has appeared in Foreign Policy and Made in China, amongst other venues. I previously spoke to Jake about the protest movement in Hong Kong. You can find that discussion in episode 66. Remember, if you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is a little over £2. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. 
So it's maybe easy to think of the growing hostility between the United States and China as a phenomena of the Trump era. But of course, there was already a developing animosity in the early stages of the George W. Bush presidency, which was interrupted by 9-11. And then, of course, we saw the so-called pivot to Asia under Barack Obama. Clearly, Trump's role is very significant in all of this. But what are the deeper tendencies that you think are driving the heightened tensions between the PRC and, and the U.S.? Yeah, it definitely is something that was emerging before Trump. And Trump sort of catalyzed this shift, but I definitely would not attribute the shift to him or to, to the administration. At one level, it's it's just about great power rivalry, and China is the only major country that is not solidly under the the US security umbrella. And so there was there's been some sense, even before Bush, since the Clinton administration at least. There has been a lot of apprehension, particularly in, in certain parts of the, of the U.S. national security state. And so there's been these voices for 20 years or more warning about the threat that China might pose. And even, even as early as the late 90s, there was already a, a sort of cottage industry of popular books about the China threat. So this is something that has sort of been an undercurrent in the relationship for a long time. But it really started to shift in a new direction under the Obama administration. And my own read on this is that the, the 2008 crisis really shook the U.S. elite in a deep way. And part of the response to that was to start seeing threats out there in the world in a, in a different light. And so one of the first sort of diplomatic initiatives of the Obama administration was Obama visited China in the midst of this is 2009, in, in the midst of the crisis, still ongoing. And the, the dominant mode of commentary in the media was the U.S., like China owns all this U.S. debt, and Obama is going there to sort of bend the knee to China because we have no choice, we're, we're indebted to China like this. And that, I don't think that, that mode of commentary really understands the dynamics of, of international debt markets, particularly when the United States is is the one doing the borrowing. But uh, I think that that expressed a kind of loss of confidence and sense of anxiety within the U.S. elite. And that led to, to an increasing kind of sense that China has this power over us now and we need to start taking it more seriously. And I think that's what's, what was behind the, the pivot, the so-called pivot to Asia, that Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State was, was really important in, in driving. That is sort of the, the moment a really new approach starts to take shape. I think it's important to note that the Obama administration did not shift to kind of open hostility to China. It was, there were tensions within the administration. Part, parts of the administration were interested in, in a fairly cooperative relationship with China. I think that it could have gone in, in a couple of different ways at that moment. So this wasn't sort of the hostility didn't emerge fully formed under Obama, but the, the kind of currents that eventually led to the, the insuperable hostility that we're facing now started there. But it was really, I think the failure of the failure of the recovery to restore the neoliberal system to health that fed a lot of this anxiety and then watching China's recovery seemingly play out in a much, in a much more satisfying way. I think that that was a bit of a, an illusion, but 
But from the standpoint of kind of economic growth figures and things like that, China looked much better coming out of this. And then you got the the China 2025, the Made in China 2025 industrial plan that kind of galvanized a lot of this anxiety within the U.S. elite that, okay, China, you know, for a long time, China has been growing, but there's there's all these forms of complementarity between the two economies, and there's a lot of money to be made there, and we don't want to create unnecessary conflict with this powerful country, and so we'll get along with China. We'll do our best to get along with China. There'll be some tensions, but but we're going to try to kind of move China smoothly into the U.S.-dominated global system. And that Made in China 2025 industrial plan really crystallized a lot of the other approach to this question, which is that, no, China is no longer complementary to us. It's trying to replace us. The U.S. economy relies so heavily on these very high-profit tech sector, and both, both economically and militarily, because there's all these military applications coming out of tech. And so U.S. power and also the viability of U.S. society, just like maintaining U.S. growth, was starting to become threatened by China. And so this is the mid-10s. And that really sort of brought together elite opinion on this that laid the foundation for Trump to make uh, the sharp shift. The concern on the security side, the worry about, as you say, China not being under the, the U.S. security umbrella, that's always there as a kind of background condition. And that was there perhaps in the, in, in the 90s and, and, and even in the 80s when, when China was a quasi ally against the Soviet Union. But it's overridden by the complementary economic relationship up until relatively recently. Yeah, I think one important part of the Obama administration's strategy to deal with the sense of a rising threat from China was the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal, which was explicitly argued for in terms of we need this U.S.-led coalition of countries to be setting the terms of trade and the economy in the Pacific region and in Asia. Otherwise, China is going to be the ones setting the terms and, and writing the rules. And that was one of the arguments used very vigorously against Trump when he then canceled the TPP. But that was sort of the one of the major moves that the Obama administration made to attempt to contain the supposed China threat. Talking about the deeper dynamics that are fed into this, it, it shows the extent to which there is a certain kind of bipartisanship, although obviously there are major differences and the TPP is one of them. But there are certain commonalities between the perspective of the Democrats and the Republicans and, and the liberal commentariat on this issue. So, I mean, at the moment, Joe Biden appears to want to compete with Donald Trump over who can be the toughest on China. And, and it was brought to my attention. I think it was possibly it may have been an article by, by, by one of one of you two. In fact, it was brought to my attention that Vox's Matthew Iglesias was tweeting back in 2018 that, as he put it, I'm coming around to the view that anti-China politics could be the unifying national project we need. So where do you see the Democrats and liberals on, on China at the moment? I think... There is a very powerful bipartisan consensus about the idea that a rising China is becoming a threat to the U.S. and needs to be confronted. The anti-China hawks really, it's a phenomenon of the bipartisan establishment. So these folks exist in both parties. There are differences in terms of, you know, they're not warmongers. However, they are 
consistent in wanting to pursue more competitive policies against China. They still buy into this framework of competition between the U.S. and China, which inevitably means taking measures, particularly economic ones, but also in in terms of like the U.S. military that, you know, even if, if they don't intend for it to lead to increasing conflict and, and increasing the risk of war, like that is the effect of the approach that they advocate. So there are sort of differences in how they understand each other, the, the right wing versus the more liberal hawks and sort of the rhetoric and and the, the, what their stated goals are. But both sides, if they get their way, are, are moving the US and China into greater confrontation and, and increasing the, the risk of outright military conflict. Yeah, I think that it's it's worth sort of looking at different elements here. There are a lot of people uh, in the Democrat in the Democratic Party or commentators, liberal commentators who don't really know anything about China and don't actually care that much about foreign policy and their priority is trying to work through the tensions that have just poured into view over the last few years in US society. And so that's where you get someone like Iglesias saying, okay, look, this could be a really convenient way to restore the united domestic society. And then you get people, you know, liberals who, are, who, who look on this and say, oh, this is a great opportunity to push my domestic agenda. The weaknesses that the United States have against China have to do with inadequate spending on infrastructure and not enough money in research and development, and what we need is better education, and, and, and maybe we need an industrial policy in order to compete with China. And these are sort of domestic priorities that don't actually have much, for these people, have much to do with China, but they, they see the possibility of using China to advance this agenda. I think that the problem here is that actually there's already overwhelming popular support for most of these policies. It's not a matter of, of getting voters on board with that agenda. It's more an argument that can be made against the rich people that don't want to pay for that agenda or the Republicans in Congress that block public investment. So I think that there's a a certain level of opportunism going on amongst a lot of the people supporting the move to great power competition, so-called. But yes, as, as Toby says, I think there's been very little thought about the dynamics of this at the level of the global system. And if the U.S. and China end up in some sort of conflict, where that goes and, and how that plays out then domestically in the United States. Because often the way that this is put is, you know, we're going to have a competition with China, but it's not going to have any racism and it's not going to have any international violence. And so these people are like, we're going to have a great power competition, but this time it's going to be completely different from every previous great power competition. And to me, that just reads as a fantasy. And I think people are... I don't know. I suspect this is this is them sort of wishing away things that are inconvenient for 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 priorities, many of them. And so, I mean, you wouldn't be opposed to an industrial policy, say, but it's the question of of hooking it into a chauvinist project that's your concern. I think it, it, it makes a real difference whether you're conceptualizing industrial policy as creating a global economy that works for everyone in the world, or whether you're conceptualizing it as creating a national economy that allows the United States to outcompete other countries. And the more common conceptualization in the Democratic Party is to think about this just in terms of, of the national economy and making the U.S. more competitive. And I think that that, aside from being opposed to that because every human being is important, not just Americans, 
you know, I'm opposed to it on in terms of the ethics of it. But I think that also completely misreads the trajectory of the global economy right now, which is increasingly creating zero sum competition between countries like the United States and China. And if we don't solve that structural drive towards conflict, then great power competition leads directly into much more violent forms of competition. And I think the the need and the potential for a form of industrial policy that doesn't fall into nationalism and zero-sum competition is really clearly demonstrated in the COVID-19 crisis with just the catastrophic failure of the so-called free market when it comes to the distribution of medical supplies. Um, There's global shortages uh, leading to price gouging and different national governments trying to commandeer the shipments of of PPE going to a different country. Like this is something that we've seen lower income countries um, having their orders of medical supplies getting blocked by the US in particular. So, you know, here we see the need for some sort of planned coordination of this really urgently important sector of the economy on an international scale. And doing it at the national level to compete with other countries like is not going to solve this global problem. Do you see a certain maybe pessimistic realism in viewing the international system as irreducibly zero sum in the sense that, you know, if we think about the heyday of social democracy, say it to a very large extent it entailed the subordination of, of much of the global south. It wasn't a situation which was beneficial to, to all parties. And is there perhaps an argument that if one really wants to break out of the zero-sum game, well, that really entails a break with capitalism because capitalism inevitably entails national capitals competing with each other. I think it does entail a break with the status quo system of global neoliberalism. It's the growing dysfunctions of the global neoliberal system that is pushing different national economies into zero-sum competition So for years, we have had very poor economic growth globally, which leads different countries, governments to sort of compete for basically a a larger slice of a shrinking pie of economic growth. And that's a really fundamental trend that is that is pushing countries into zero sum competition, in particular, the US and China. And we have a global problem of overcapacity where the productive capacity of industry globally outstrips, outstrips demand, leading to job losses, the loss of manufacturing jobs. But that's a global problem. You know, they, they talk about trying to bring jobs back from China, but manufacturing employment in China has been dropping for years, huge losses in manufacturing jobs in China. And never reached the scale that manufacturing had in terms of jobs in the West, right? Yeah, so this is an, a global problem that requires a, a global solution. So this, this absolutely requires a break with the neoliberal status quo. We need a new regime of global growth that can be more progressive and more accommodating and relieve these pressures that push national governments into the sense of zero-sum competition with each other. I think the idea of a break from capitalism is not a thing that we can achieve in the next 10 to 20 years, which is the period of time in which we do need to prevent the US and China 
from falling into this uh, escalating feedback loop of conflict and competition that will eventually lead us to war if we if we don't find a path out of it. Yeah, so I think the solution within the timeline we need to work within isn't to make this radical break from capitalism, but it is to create a world beyond neoliberalism. And that is a radical project. Yeah, I think capitalism necessarily involves certain forms of subordination and, and inequality. But I think that we should be careful not to confuse capitalism per se with the specifically neoliberal form of capitalism, because overcoming the neoliberal system would open up possibilities for capitalism that would be broadly progressive and that would tend toward the reduction of international tensions. In certain moments of growth, everyone can gain a share if, you know, if, if power, if the power distribution is right, everyone can benefit from growth, at least in a material sense. If the logic of growth is, is working so that labor is incorporated and so that the gains of productivity growth are spread broadly. I think that is possible within capitalism, whether that's sort of indefinitely sustainable within capitalism as the, the hope of social democracy had it. That's an entirely different question. But I think the immediate question we face is how to deal with the climate crisis, how to deal with the pandemic, how to prevent some kind of return of great power conflict that would rip apart the world. And, and I think overcoming neoliberalism into a, a progressive form of global growth is the way to do that. And a fundamental part of the new global order has to be a massive shift of power and income from capital to labor. The deep dysfunctions of the neoliberal system that we're seeing right now can all be traced to excessive power of capital over labor, too much of the income share going to capital rather than to labor. So it's pretty standard now for people across the political spectrum to see that the global economy is becoming dysfunctional and there need to be changes. But if they're not talking about a massive shift of power and income from capital to labor, then their supposed solutions and everything they're proposing is either futile or self-destructive. Thinking about the neoliberal counter-revolution of the late 70s and, and, and early 80s, I mean, it's, you know, it's often described in terms of the response of capital to the strength of, of, of workers and, and the labour movement and, and um, rising wages. So presumably this strategy, strategy of trying to increase the share going to labour would once again put on the table the question of, of, of what to do about capitalism in the long run, because clearly that's not a situation which capitalists are themselves going to be happy with, presumably. In the rich countries, they were pretty happy with it in the 50s and 60s, into the 70s. And it, and it was the reaction against social democracy and against inclusive labor regimes in places like the US and Europe and Japan. The reaction against that in the 70s was, was quite uneven as well. And so I, I, read, I read the crisis of the 70s not so much as uh, capitalists like suddenly coming to their senses after 20 to 30 years of inclusive growth, I read it instead as a crisis of that system of inclusive growth that forced you know, certain parts of capital as well as parts of the political system in a new direction and then pioneered neoliberalism as the, as the solution to that crisis. 
Well, I suppose one question is, what gives you the certainty to think that there is a way to to break out of the situation of low growth, to be able to actually move into this situation where everybody, you know, sort of differentially, but everybody benefits? I wouldn't say that I'm certain that we can accomplish it politically, but I but I'm certain that it works in principle, in the sense that like the the you know we can look to that moment of social democracy within the rich countries. And think about what that would look like if we applied it at a global level. And the dynamics are essentially the same, which is that like coming out of the, the period of, of liberal capitalism of the 19th century and the early 20th century, and then the complete collapse of that system in the Depression, coming out of that, there was a huge part of the population that was highly exploited. In, that's the working class and excluded from consumption. And then there was another huge part that was entirely excluded from the economy. And this is the people who populated the slums and, and sort of picked trash and begged on the street and did sort of petty, petty retail or petty production. And so what happened with social democracy, the post-war order of capitalism, was that those parts of the population were incorporated into the system. They were incorporated through rising wages and improving working conditions and stronger power for labor power for labor that did not ultimately challenge the, the hold of the capitalist class over production, but that balanced how those dynamics played out in the workplace in a new way. And they were also incorporated at the level of, of ideology and culture, given a sense of value and status that was previously denied to them. And so that incorporation, both economically and culturally and politically, is what allowed that system to reproduce itself for 25, 30 years. We can imagine, I think, a similar kind of dynamic at, at a global level. Right now, we have literally billions of people who are excluded entirely from the global economy. Because under free market conditions, investing in people who currently produce no value would be completely irrational. You're not going to get a return on that investment. And the change in the post-war system is that you had a much higher rates of public investment, and you also had large bureaucratically organized corporations that were able to make long-term large-scale investments in a way that was much harder when market forces were dominant. And so we're, we're suffering a similar kind of dysfunction right now, where everything is market-driven, which means large-scale long-term investments that could transform the economic landscape, transform the social landscape, are essentially impossible under the rules of the neoliberal system. But the idea that that form of investment is impossible per se, I think that's wrong. That if there were a political breakthrough that won a much larger presence for public investment that forced large-scale corporations that sort of dominate their sector, that forced them to channel capital in socially productive ways, then that would lead to a revival of growth. It would lead to an incorporation of those parts of the population that are currently excluded or that are currently subordinated within production through exploitation. So it doesn't sort of end inequality. It doesn't end differences of power. And there still would be enormous struggles just to make sure that the people who are currently excluded were brought into the system. But it is possible in principle, I think. I think this program is already being worked out in one way in the emerging discourse around this idea of a global Green New Deal to take the concept of a Green New Deal and extend it internationally. So if you think about an international program 
to channel clean energy investment all around the world, including into lower income countries where they don't have the capital and the resources to make this rapid shift into a clean energy economy on their own. So some of that is going to have to come from wealthier countries. That is a way of channeling investment internationally, incorporating more marginalized populations into the economy, raising wages and and in living conditions there in the process. So in, in effect, a, a vision of what we're talking about is, is, is getting worked out there. On the question of the labor movement, where are the labor unions on the question of China? Are they very much bought into the narrative of China stealing American jobs? Are there certain sectors which are taking a more progressive position? There's a lot of variation in the labor movement. There are certainly some parts of the labor movement which are pretty solidly anti-China in the way you describe but in a lot of parts of the labor, in a lot of unions, there are some very committed internationalist unions. Unfortunately, that is a minority of the labor movement at the moment. I think what is more common is the coexistence of both a kind of economic nationalism that includes this idea that uh, China is taking American jobs alongside the ideals of labor internationalism and global worker solidarity in that both of those ideas can coexist in a number of unions. And I think a lot of the times the, the, the contradiction between these two ideas isn't clear. It's not on the surface. It hasn't come to the surface yet. So just these ideas coexist, which creates the potential for these unions to go in the sort of anti-China economic nationalist direction, but also the potential to build the power of internationalism. An important function of, of formulating the idea of progressive globalization as the alternative both to neoliberal globalization and to nationalist reaction is to offer a channel through which the more progressive sentiments can grow. Because part of what's driving that nationalism is just is just reactionary sentiments that you see commonly in organized labor. But a really important part of it is the sense that there's no alternative. It's like you either pick neoliberal globalization or you pick a basically nationalist orientation that's protectionist, that that supports an industrial policy to make the U.S. economy more competitive. There is not a well-articulated alternative to, to those two, to me, completely unacceptable alternatives. And the idea of progressive globalization offers that, that we can, we can raise up workers in this country while we raise up workers in other countries. And that's a matter of, that's a matter of sort of articulating that as an alternative, but it's also a matter of, of organizing people into that alternative and demonstrating that it's politically viable. Yeah, I think there are two two major tasks that I, I see in open up greater space for the kind of internationalism we're talking about. One is, like Jake says, clarifying the progressive global alternative. The other is helping people to understand the potential of solidarity with the working class and progressive forces in China, or even more basic than that, just the basic task of humanizing Chinese people. I think for a lot of people in the US, the humanity of, of people in China is sort of unimaginable. Like what is a Chinese person's life is, is just out, totally outside of the experience of the majority of people in the US and very difficult to imagine. So I think this, this, this is a task for the progressive movement in the US as a whole. It's also an important task within the labor movement. And there have been really remarkable efforts by some figures in the labor movement to create relationships between 
labor leaders, as well as sort of rank and file union members in the US and their counterparts in China. So there have been folks in investing in this work, and there have been some remarkable successes, but this is something we, we need a lot more of. And Toby, you've written specifically on some of the tropes of, of anti-Chinese racism in, in the United States, which is very different, say, from racism directed towards black people, for instance. And in terms of that anti-Chinese racism that we see coming from politicians and being recycled in the media, could, could you talk about the, the distinctive character of that racism and how it served to support anti-Chinese policy? Yeah, so a couple of core features of anti-Chinese racism, which for the most part generalizes to anti-Asian racism. So one, one crucial feature is the idea or the perception that among Chinese people or Asian people, the capacities for productive work are overdeveloped and every other feature of humanity is underdeveloped. So we are studious and hardworking and highly disciplined intelligent. However, we have no emotional life. Our, our family life is, is degraded. We are not creative. We don't have any talent for leadership, right? So those are, that, that is one crucial feature of anti-Chinese or anti-Asian racism. Another major feature is the idea that we are not really individuals. And so like, it's common to think of all Chinese people as the way I describe it is something like a Borg-like collective, you know, like from Star Trek, where there's sort of a, a hive mind and no real individuals. I think that is more or less how a lot of people think of 1.4 billion Chinese people as, as this monolithic China that is homogenous and in which there's not really anyone exercising independent thought. So I think those two features are contributing a great deal to anti-China nationalism in the US. So it makes it easy to think of the Chinese economy as this overwhelming threat because the Chinese economy is powered by this billion Chinese people who are hyperproductive and tantamount to robots, and how can American workers possibly compete against that? It also creates this sense of this enormous, this enormous population that is in lockstep doing the will of the Chinese Communist Party. We see this in domestic policy in the U.S., with increasingly in this is this has been emerging over a number of years, but increasingly under under Trump, the persecution of people of Chinese descent and in particular folks who have immigrated from China, uh, the persecution of students and and scholars and and researchers. This is very obvious racial profiling of people who have come from China, and now more recently the threat to expel Chinese international students either the ones specifically working in STEM fields or all international students in general, like there are different proposals coming out of the Republican Party right now. And this is justified through these ideas like Chris Ray, Trump's FBI director, saying that China is a whole of society threat rather than a whole of government threat, which means that rather than just thinking of the Chinese government as trying to undermine the country, we have to think of every single part of Chinese society as a tool being used by the Chinese government to undermine American society and American power.
You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.